Acts chapter 17. I mentioned at the early, uh, earlier service that um, I'm a bit <clears throat> nervous uh, this morning. I've got a brother-in-law who himself is not super country, but I'm guessing he grew up that way because he has all sorts of country sayings that are good and applicable. One of them that he used to say was, uh, or something to this effect, that I'm as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of, of uh, rocking chairs, which is pretty nervous. Um, so uh, what comes out of the text this morning, I think, is important. But I hope that as you're listening that you'll be praying that the Lord would grant me uh, wisdom and clarity uh, as I speak, but also as, as you listen, that it would be uh, well-received and in the right way. So Acts chapter 17, and if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand as we read verses 1 through 15. And this is what it says. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money of security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But then the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. And they came there, too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent off Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I'll ask you to pray with me. Lord, as we turn our attention towards your word, I pray that you would help us to remember that all glory is due to you and that we can rest on you. We need not fear or concern ourselves with our own weakness and incapacity because you're able and you're mighty to save and so lord i pray that as i speak that uh, my mind would be quick and that my words would be well chosen and i pray that as people will li listen that they'll listen through the chaff and hear the the meat that is is good for our souls and i pray that your word would do its work and help us to be full of faith believing that you don't let your word return without benefit and so I pray that that would be accomplished this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
I once read uh, some years ago that there are two aims when someone is preaching, and the two aims are, first of all, to comfort the afflicted. That seems like a good aim. And the second is to afflict the comforted. I, that kind of seems like a good aim, maybe, but I, I hope that I'll be able to do a little bit of both this morning as we approach Acts chapter 17. The verses I read are, are pretty clear. It's two stories. It's a tale of two cities, uh, that of Thessalonica and then Berea. And both of these cities had the word of God preached to them. And Thessalonica, uh, they received it, and um, although some rejected. And then the same thing happened then again in, in Berea. And so I'll just recount the stories for you back to back and uh, go through those. And then for the latter half of the message, I want to address verse 7 of Acts chapter 17. And so a fair amount of the time will be spent there. I give you a little roadmap so that you know where to place your naps. If the front doesn't interest you, you can sleep and then wake up for the back end. If the back end doesn't interest you, you get my point. Actually, that's not what I really meant. But anyway, okay, so Paul at, in Thessalonians chapter, uh, I'm sorry, let me start again. I got myself completely off track. So verses 2 through 9, we have Paul going to Thessalonica. And he shows up at the synagogue, and this has been his normal routine. When he goes into the cities, we've seen this back through the book of Acts. And so when he shows up, he goes to the synagogue, and for three straight weeks, he begins to preach, and he begins to explain to the people uh, what is showed up in the Old Testament. He spent his time there reasoning with those he gathered, it tells us, and he's explaining and he's proving from the Scripture that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And so he takes the Old Testament Scriptures that most of them would have been familiar with, and he begins to explain what they mean, and he reasons with them and shows that there was a Messiah who was going to come, and this Messiah was going to suffer for the sins of people, and that that Messiah was going to rise from the dead. But he also, it tells us, declared that the Messiah was Jesus. That the Jesus that who had recently been on earth, uh, just some 20 years earlier, was that Messiah. And so Paul preaches, explaining, reasoning, declaring that there had to be a Messiah and that the, this Messiah was Jesus the Christ. This is what we call the good news. And in, in church circles, we use the word gospel, and we talk about the gospel. Maybe we'll say the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Mark. But the word gospel simply means good news. And the people that Paul was speaking to, just like us, were concerned about how they could be right with God. That's why they showed up at the synagogue. They wanted to know what they needed to do in order to be right with God. And just like them, we show up at church and we often compose a list of sacrifices that we will make to God. We're a little bit unclear about whether or not God will accept that sacrifice. We don't know if God will change his mind somewhere in the process. And that maybe he'll want something different. That he started out wanting one thing and then he changes his mind to something else. We don't know if our sacrifice or our intentions are, will be big enough. We tend to feel that if we're going to be right with God... Then he, that he has some demands for us. There's something that we need to do in order to be right with him. We're a little bit unclear about the, what they are. We're unsure about what they are. So we keep trying to, to find a way to appease God, some way to barter our way into his favor. We're afraid to run away from him. We feel like if we stay with God, 
we're never going to be happy because we don't know what pleases him. And in our efforts to please him, we constantly run up against a dead end, almost like we're chasing a carrot on a stick and we cannot make him happy. But on the other hand, we're afraid to leave him because if we leave him, we're, we're quite certain that we're going to end up in judgment. And so it turns out that frequently we think of God as being unapproachable. And we ask the question, how can I be right, right with God? But it becomes an endless pursuit of finding the right sacrifice, making sure that it is large enough. And we shift it and change it and trying to figure out what it is that God wants. We're trying to find out what it is that we perceive as his whims that make him happy. But if we reflect on the good news, the Gospels tells us that all the time that we've been trying to reach him, the good news is that God is already in the process of bringing us back to himself. We've been trying to figure out the right and proper sacrifice. But God has already made the first steps towards us, and he's already offered to us Jesus. And he's already said that Jesus is a sacrifice that, that allows us to be right with him. What happens for many of us is that we load up all of our sacrifices and we load up our intentions and we load up our promises to, to, to do better and we, we bring those to God. We load up so many of them that we look like the Beverly Hillbillies driving their, their truck to Beverly Hills. If you've seen the reruns or if you're old enough to know what I'm talking about, the, the truck has all these things hanging all over, all off of it. And, and they're driving this dilapidated truck to Beverly Hills and we tend to do with that, that with our promises to God and our intentions to Him. We just load all these things up and we get them all on the truck and then we affix to the front of this truck a battering ram so that when we get to God's house, we can batter down the front door and bring all of our promises and resolutions to Him. And we hope somehow in the doing of this that God is honored and God is pleased and God is satisfied. But if we could ever get our eyes over all the junk that we've got on the front of this truck... We would arrive and see that God is already at the house and he's already got the door wide open and he's standing on the front porch and he's welcoming, welcoming us home. God is the one who is doing the reconciling. God is the one who reaches out first to us. And rather than us trying to figure out how we can please him, he's the one who is already making provision for us. And that is what the gospel is. You were against God because of your sins, but God gave us Jesus who died for our sins and resurrected him from the dead so that if we trust in him, he allows us to have that provision. In fact, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him and believes that he suffered and that he died for our sins and resurrected from the dead, that person will not perish but will have everlasting life. And so the message of the gospel is, stop trying to save yourself. God has already done the work in Christ. Jesus is mighty and he's willing to save. And this is essentially what Paul preached to the church at Thessalonica or the people at Thessalonica. And this is what happens when the gospel is declared, when it is conveyed to people, many believed. And so it tells us in verse 4 that some believed and it names some of those who believed. They were from different walks of life, but they heard this good news and they were tired of trying to save themselves and they looked to Jesus and they believed. But verse 5 says, not only did some believe, but some opposed. And all through the book of Acts, 
We've seen that, this, that where the good news flourishes, bad news retaliates. Some people chose not to believe. They weren't really invested. They just, they just didn't believe the gospel. They heard it. But others tried and chose to try to stamp out the Christian faith. And so there in uh, verse 5, it has a list of three different groups of people. And it says, first of all, that there were jealous Jews. And they were philosophically or ideologically opposed to the gospel. They wanted nothing to do with it. They thought that it was a, a, a farce and something that should be stamped out. So you have the jealous Jews. Then there were the rabble-rousers. These were just the idle troublemakers who, who drifted around town. They just wanted to get themselves in trouble. They liked the excitement of it. And then the third group was the mindless mob. Their followers, they were just looking for an adventure. And so what happens inside the story is that these jealous Jews, because they were opposed to the gospel, stirred up the rabble-rousers to create trouble. And then the rabble-rousers who were creating trouble brought the mindless mob who really didn't care one way or another, but just wanted to be on the scene creating trouble. But the aim of the jealous Jews, and I should say here that it's not just jealous Jews in the book of Acts, but also we'll see greedy Gentiles show up. And so sometimes the, the idea is that people wanted power or that they wanted money or whatever, but they opposed the gospel. But the jealous Jews, because they infiltrated the rabble-rousers, who infiltrated the mob, were able to set the city in an uproar, it tells us in verses 6 and 7. And so the city's in an uproar. And so this mob goes to the home of Jason, which is where Paul and Silas were staying. And when they go into the house, they don't find Paul and Silas, so they're a little frustrated by that. So they grab Jason and some other people that were there in the house, and they bring them out in front of the city magistrates, and they begin to accuse them. And they accuse them of three things. First of all, it says that these are the guys who have turned the world upside down. They've come here to trouble us also. Now, we know that the gospel is intent on setting the world right side up, not upside down, but that's how these people perceived it. And so they said that these people are coming, and they're troubling the world, and they've come here to trouble our city as well. Well, that was a problem for the city magistrates. As long as things were calm in Thessalonica, the Roman government wouldn't intervene. But if things began to get out of hand and there were some insurrections or there were some mobs that showed up, then the Roman government would start to tighten the screws to keep peace in the nation. And so this uh, concerned the, the, the magistrates. So that was the first charge. The second charge was that they were harboring Paul and Silas. So Jason was accused of, of giving safe harbor to these guys who were turning the world upside down. And then the third accusation was that they were defying Caesar. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. Well, verses 8 and 9 tell us that the leaders of the city were disturbed. I mean, this upset them. They were concerned. And so they talked sternly to Jason and the others who were with him, and they took their money, and then they let them go. Now, we're not told whether taking the money was bail so that they behaved in the way they wanted to or whether they just took their money and that was the end of it. But the upshot of it all was that Paul and Silas moved on to another city and that city was Berea that we read about. And so in the same fashion, they show up in Berea and they begin to preach in the, in the synagogue and declare the gospel in the synagogue. And it tells us at verse 11 that the hearers that were there received the word 
and that they examined the scriptures, the scriptures to see if these things were so. So they were aware of what the Old Testament scripture said. Paul and Silas showed up and said, Jesus is the Messiah. You should trust in Jesus. Well, they went to the word and they began to examine it to see whether or not this was in fact the truth. And coming to this and examining it, they became convinced that it was in fact the truth. And so at verse 12, again, it says that many believed. But then again, at verse 13, we find that again, there was opposition. But read verse 13 with me. It says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So some opposed. But at least here in the text, it's not the people in Berea who opposed, but these jealous Jews from Thessalonica who traveled the 50 miles from Thessalonica down to Berea to oppose the gospel. Now, they're traveling primarily by foot, so we're thinking two to three days' journey. They're so incensed against the gospel that they take this two or three day journey to go to a city that they have really have nothing to do with to oppose those who are preaching the gospel. And so again, they agitate and stir up the crowds. And so the story ends at the end of verse 15. That Paul left, they sent Paul away kind of as the lightning rod of what was going on, the, the, the opposition to Paul. And they sent him off, but Silas and some others remained there in Berea and continued to establish a church there. Now, all of, the, all of that is backdrop to what I want to say now this morning about verse 7. And I'll read it again or read part of it just to keep it in your mind, this accusation against the disciples. And it says, They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So I want to talk just a few minutes about opposition to believing in Jesus. We've kidded you guys about it, and you guys have kidded us about it, and we've laughed about it with our friends. But when Laura and I showed up, we were informed that we were the older people that y'all were praying for because <laughs> everybody was young at that time. I just want to say some other older folks have come in along with us. So at any rate, there is an advantage to being older. There are some cyclical things that take place that, that you're able to, to see just because you've lived a long time. And so I want to talk just a few minutes about opposition to the gospel. And really, in a sense, I'd almost like to say, if, if we could, I just want to pull up a chair and say, look, we need to talk a little bit. We need to talk about being a believer and we need to talk about the church and on my way to getting into that I want to make three clarifications that I think are necessary to make the point this morning the first clarification is this if you read history and particularly if you read religious history Christian and otherwise you'll find that there's always been a strong contingent of people who always think that the apocalypse is just around the bend like the end of time is just around the corner. And I don't know if people still tell the story of Chicken Little, but in this fable, uh, this little chicken runs around, an acorn or something fell on its head, and it thought the sky was falling, so it goes around telling everybody that the sky is falling. 
But some people are like that. They always declare that the sky is falling. The end is near, and everybody is out to get them. There's something that is evil under every rock, and every bit of bad news is more proof that the end is near. And that's why so many people who are, associate themselves with Christianity fall prey to conspiracy theories. Bad things are going on in the world, and the apocalyptic types find a shadow connection behind every bad thing that happens. And I just want to be clear that that's not helpful for anyone. It's particularly not helpful for followers of Jesus. So what I'm saying now is not intended to introduce doom and gloom. It's not to announce the end of the world. But in some measure, it is to say we need to be alert to our times. Clarification, clarification number two. We do need to be clear about what religious persecution actually is. And I don't mean to be offensive if, if you've taken this tact, but I'd at least like you to reconsider if you have. Some believers are mistaken about persecution. Some believers embrace victimhood and they rename it religious persecution. And it would kind of go like this. If a store refuses to say Merry Christmas and says season's greetings instead, they become offended. And I'm just clarifying that that is not persecution. That is a different worldview that views Christmas in a different light than you do. But it's not persecution. It's two different worldviews approaching Christmas from a different direction. So I think on the one hand, sometimes believers are too sensitive. And in some sense, we're trying to hold on to a tradition versus uh, recognizing actual persecution. I also, in this same vein, want to say that there's a number of issues regarding freedom and independence that are not issues of religious freedom. For instance... I really don't like the amount of taxes I'm required to pay, especially when I see how they're spent sometimes. I don't like the, facts that I get, the fact that I get taxed when I make money. I don't like the fact that I get taxed if I save money. I don't like the fact that I get taxed if I spend money. And I don't like the fact that I get taxed if I do nothing with my money when I die. I, I just don't like that. But it is not an issue of religious freedom. There may be other reasons we oppose it but, it, but that is not one of religious freedom. Similarly, governments have a vested interest in encouraging certain behaviors. And so governments incentivize certain things. Historically, in the United States, churches have been tax-exempt. The government decided to extend tax-free status to churches and other nonprofit organizations as a way to encourage morality. And they did that because there was an assumption that if America ever ceased to be good in the way of morals, that it would cease to be great. And so part of incentivizing the development of morals was giving tax-free status to churches. But consider our times. Now the question is not necessarily what is moral, that comes, but who decides what is moral? And so it's quite likely that in the days to come, the government will rescind that tax-free status of churches. 
And what I would like to convey about that is that it probably, likely, and I would say surely, is an unwise move for the government, but it is not religious persecution. In that circumstance, what they would be doing was rescinding a benefit that was given, but it is just taking that back. It is not necessarily religious persecution. Clarification number three. The Bible teaches that government has a proper role. Romans 13 in particular reinforces that truth. And Jesus himself reinforces that. When someone asked him about paying taxes, he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Followers of Jesus are expected to pray for those in political authority. And we're supposed to be respectful and obedient to the government. But as we've also seen in the book of Acts, including just last week, the government has often aligned itself against Christianity. I'm speaking now about government over the last 2,000 years. There's been prison and persecution and execution of believers. And all those took place in the book of Acts just 20 years after Jesus had resurrected. So they were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Let me note four things. First is this. There is opposition to the gospel. In the book of Acts, we find the mindless mob who probably doesn't care much way, one way or the other. And we have the rabble-rousers who themselves likely are just looking for something to do. And then we have the jealous Jews and the greedy Gentiles who had an agenda against the gospel. The truth of God challenges man's own authority. It says that man does not get to decide his version of reality. He must conform to what is, and therefore he must bow to God. And those who are opposed to God, like the jealous Jews, will use both political pressure and social persuasion to silence the good news. We should not be mistaken about this. There is an onslaught in the political arena and in popular media to undermine God's truth. Right now, it's primarily playing out in the re uh, arena of sexual ethics and transgender identities. That is not because Christianity chose that those are the sins that we would most like to be against. If the government was starting to support robbing banks on Tuesdays at 12, then it would be the responsibility of the church to stand up and say, no, we do not do that. We cannot do that. We're, we're forbidden by Scripture to steal. But the government has chosen to hitch itself to this particular issue of sexual ethics. It's the vehicle to challenge those who embrace God as a source of truth. And if you're alert to what is happening in our culture, Facebook has removed posts and suspended accounts that address the dangers of transgenderism. Amazon has banned and removed best-selling books that challenge the transgender philosophy. Pushed by those opposed to the gospel, the government is gradually insisting that everyone abandon the belief that there is a created order that says that God has made man and God has made woman and that we don't get to decide our reality. 
disagreement with transgenderism, however gently it is done, is deemed offensive hate speech. A political agenda has been established that requires acceptance of an upside-down world. If you read politics or if you read Supreme Court cases that, that as they come out, you will be aware that there are multiple attempts to require everyone to accept that humans, not God, decides their gender identity or sexuality. Even in something as innocuous as a budget, there are attempts to normalize transgender ideology. The 2022 budget for the United States in some areas replaces the word mother with the word birthing, words birthing person. Something is afoot that is contrary to the truth of the gospel. The Equality Act was passed earlier this year in February by the House of Representatives. It's now going before the, the Senate. There's more opposition against it in the Senate. But the Equality Act addresses a number of things, but gender identity rights is one of them. And it specifically removes religious freedom to voice disagreement with the premise of transgender identity. It will put the church in the crosshairs of the government when the church is not allowed to stand and say, this is what God has said, and this is where we are. The Equality Act e equates Christian ethics with hatred and bigotry. And if you read enough online, you'll, you'll see that this is, is so. What is true is that when the Christian viewpoint is at odds with the government, the government flexes because there can only be one king. And the king will either be Christ or the king will be Caesar. But it cannot be both. That's point one. Point two, the gospel should be examined and embraced. The Bereans that we read about in Acts 17 searched the scripture to see whether these things were true. The Christian faith is not something that can be entered into lightly. It's countercultural. It's becoming more countercultural. And it costs, and it will probably likely cost more in the days ahead. I fear that many are under, misunderstanding the cost of being a believer. In 2005, so it's now an old book, 17 years old, there was a book by the title Soul Searching. It was written by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. And they identified through surveys how the majority of Christian teenagers viewed the Christian faith. There was a study earlier this year that, that indicated that it's still the prevailing view for self-professing Christians under the age of 50. And it's the majority of self-proclaimed Christians. Smith designated this view mono, uh, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, which are some highfalutin sounding words. I'll break them down here in just a minute. The words sound complicated, but this is what many self-proclaimed Christians believe, that the gospel of Christianity is moralistic. And what they mean by that is that people are supposed to be good to each other. That is, they're supposed to be moral. And as long as they're moral, then they're Christians. But there's something inside of that morality that stands outside of what the Bible says because there is, for them, no absolute moral truth. That is, there's no hard lines or contours to what is right and what is wrong. Truth is liquid, and it can be poured into this situation or that situation and, and conform to whatever is there. So 
morality depends on somebody's perception. So if you are telling me that this is right for you and I'm saying this is right for me, well, then that truth, that morality is yours, and this truth, this morality is mine, and both can be at the same time simultaneously true. And if you assume that that is what Christianity is like, then, there's, then there are no hard edges to it. It can float here, it can float there, it can accept this, it can accept that. Moralistic approach also says that God allows good people into heaven and is largely defined by how nice we are and how we have treated other people. It's moralistic, but it's therapeutic because it says that the most important part of life, the apex of life or the apex of Christianity is that life is to be happy and that we are supposed to feel good about ourselves and that anything that imposes on how we feel about ourselves cannot be accepted and cannot be right. And therefore, God places limited demands on people. It's not necessary that our lives conform to a particular way of living or to a particular set of ideas. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism, meaning that there's a belief that there is a God, and he's there, he exists, but he remains distant from people's lives. And while he exists, he doesn't have any real impact on how people live or on how people think. But this stands outside of what Orthodox Christianity is. It stands outside of biblical truth. The good news that the Bereans embraced was not self-help faith sprinkled with Christian words. It was a robust understanding that God created everything and everyone and that everyone is accountable to God and that God provided Jesus so that we could be right with him and at peace with him. And here's the challenge. Because Christianity has been uh, looked at as some kind of a traditional thing that we just kind of join into, particularly in the South, we will never withstand opposition. If we've come to Christianity simply because it made us feel better about ourselves, if we've accepted the Christian faith because it was expected of us or because it was our family tradition or because of the community around us and it just kind of seemed the thing to do, then we will fall in the time of opposition. We should be like the Bereans, examine it to see if it is in fact true. And if it is true that Christ has risen from the dead, that it impacts the way that we live, it impacts the way that we think. But if you examine it and it is not true, then there's no reason to be at Crossway this morning. Go to Wrightsville Beach. Do some other thing. But if it is true, it makes demands of us. And it requires that we be countercultural. And it requires that we be ready for the cost. Examine it. Examine it to see if it is true. If you're not convinced that it is the truth, that Jesus died for your sins and resurrected from the dead, then the po political and social opposition will destroy your faith. Point number three. We should not be surprised by the opposition. For a long time, followers of Jesus in the United States have had a long run of freedom. In general, it's been easy to be a believer. Being a Christian has not impacted social standing. It's not impacted our earning power. 
It has not placed us at odds with the government. But increasingly, there's an ideological split in the United States. And if you are to look at the numbers, Orthodox Christianity is a, a minority, a significant minority. So we're being a little bit naive if we anticipate that it will continue to be an easy street for believers. There are people, like the Jew jealous Jews in Acts 17, who strongly oppose the Christian faith. They intend to persecute it. They intend to silence it. Some of them have taken it upon themselves to stir up opposition to those who embrace believing in Jesus and everything that comes with it. But it's helpful for us to remember the words of Jesus when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven for the, in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Or the words from the book of Hebrews, the writer who said, But recall the former days after you came to the gospel. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those who were in prison due to their faith, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Maybe like Jason who had his money taken since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The pattern in the book of Acts is very clear. When people embraced the gospel, some of them lost their money. Some of them lost their freedom. Some of them lost their lives. We are to pray for our government praying that we can lead quiet and godly lives. It might be that God will answer the prayers of his people and that God will turn the nation. We don't know. We hope for that and pray for that. But if not, we should be utterly convinced of the truth of the gospel so that whatever comes our way, we're willing to pay the price and hold true to our Christ. The reason is point four. We really are declaring that there is another king. We are declaring that there's a king that exceeds the governments of the United States, the governments of all the world, and it's him who has our allegiance. Caesar never likes another king that challenges its authority. But that is precisely what we are doing. We're saying we recognize the role of government, but that the role of government only goes so far. At the point that the government insists that we contradict what God says, we draw a line and we say, here I stand, I can do no other. Here I stand, I can do no other. Martin Luther in one of his songs wrote this verse, let goods, if our finances suffer, let goods and kindreds go. Kindred go. It might require Losing family, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, if our lives are requested, the body they may kill. God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. I don't know where all this is going from the political side 
or the social side. What I do know is it's going to cost us if we're going to be faithful. But we're being faithful to a king and a kingdom that are forever. We are declaring that there is another king and we must obey God rather than man. I leave you with a verse from 1 Thessalonians. It comes at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's appropriate because Paul, in spite of everything that was going on, left behind a church. And then after he left, he writes back this letter. And this is what he says to them at the end of his letter. Now, may the God of peace. Does it concern you what's going on in our world, in our nation? We need the God of peace. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. That is, set you apart completely. And may your whole spirit, your whole soul, and your whole body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he follows up with this. He who calls you is faithful, and he surely will do it. We do not need to move forward in fear. We do not need to move forward quaking. We need to anchor ourselves in the hope that is our Christ and the hope that is our King and recognize that God who calls us is faithful and he will do everything in us that needs to be done. There is another King and his name is Jesus. Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord, thank you that we need not fear the days ahead, though we need to be prepared. And I pray that you would help us as parents and friends and whatever else, teachers or whatever, I pray that you would help us to encourage people to take their faith seriously as truth. And I pray that you'd help us to be convinced that you died for our sins, that you raised again from the dead. And help us, Lord, to move forward in hope, trusting that Christ will be our anchor, whatever comes our way. Help us to be faithful and help us to remember that you will always be faithful. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.